This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Ideas Festival, April 29th to May 6th, online and in Seattle. That's part of our history that, I mean, literally has been whitewashed out. I mean, the Confederate flag flying over downtown Seattle is like the least of it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. Today we're talking about the Confederate flag in the Northwest. And specifically, we are referring to an episode that we've done called Mossback Upon Further Review, the Seattle Freeze and the Old South. Now, if you haven't seen the video, take a moment, stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. And we'll see you back here in just a moment. About two years ago, Knut and I collaborated on a Mossbacks Northwest story about the Seattle freeze, everybody's favorite subject, right? Some say Seattleites are too cold, too distant, too unwelcoming. Is that true or just another Seattle myth? Either way, I'm dressed for the Seattle freeze. And as a part of my work as producer, I was trying to find footage of older Seattle, especially Seattle in the 1940s, because it seems like the Seattle freeze existed even back then. I found some beautiful color archival film from the Seattle Municipal Archives of downtown Seattle, people shopping, busy day and night, um, cars, just a lot of bustling and activity. And in one of those shots was some sort of a parade or festivity at, where there were flags thrown up all over the place. And there was about a two-second shot of a flag that turned out to be a Confederate flag. We entirely missed it, but our viewers didn't. So, Canute, what was that flag doing there? We know it was sometime in the 1940s. Yeah, well, you know, upon further review, we decided to pay attention to the viewers who said, what the heck is going on? Why would a Confederate flag or Confederate flags be flying over downtown Seattle? And so we had to do some detective work to figure out, well, exactly when was this footage shot? What did it show? We could tell from the footage it was wintertime. So it wasn't a 4th of July parade. People were wearing coats. Yes, they were there were people up. in overcoats. It was clear that the weather was, was chilly. Um, and when we took a look at the flags, when we blew up the footage and really got a look at it, you could see that there were some what we call Confederate flag, the, the Confederate battle flag with the St. Andrew's cross. There were a couple of those. But most of them, it was just, it looked like red, white, and blue bunting. But what it in fact was was the Confederate official flag, the old stars and bars, which looked a lot like the American flag. And as I, as I dug into it, I finally figured out that this was Fifth Avenue, and it was the premiere of Gone with the Wind. The movie Gone with the Wind opened in Seattle in January of 1940. It had snowed the previous day, uh, and somebody had taken a home movie and, uh, you know, there was a, 
a little bit of clip of the footage that showed people lined up, and they're clearly, you know, lined up to go into a theater or something like that. The Fifth Avenue Theater. That's right, the Fifth Avenue Theater. And, uh, yeah, so it turned out we had the time period was correct. And um, the promoters, MGM, of Gone with the Wind had arranged for Fifth Avenue to be festooned with Confederate flags for the movie. And so then the question arose, well, why would that be acceptable in Seattle? So actually I wrote a follow-up article um, tracing sort of changing attitudes toward the Confederacy and toward race that occurred in Seattle in the first half of the 20th century. Was the appearance of a Confederate flag, in the, and I'm, I'm talking about the, the classic one, uh, which I used to call Stars and Bars, but I guess that's incorrect. That's right. The St. Andrew's Cross. Right. Uh, was that commonplace in Seattle back then? No, it wasn't. Um, as far as I can tell, it wasn't commonplace. But commemorations of the Confederacy had become much more commonplace. And... Uh, part of the of the sort of society section. There was a very active unit of the Daughters of the Confederacy here. So these are people descended from Confederates, uh, Confederate officers and that kind of thing. And they would celebrate Robert E. Lee's birthday. They would have Southern balls. They would, um, there was a Confederate monument up at Lakeview Cemetery on Capitol Hill. There was, there were even in the, in the 1940s, 30s and 40s, there was even uh, a Confederate veteran who lived in town who would be trotted out on these occasions. He was very elderly, but he, um, you know, they had a they had a living <laughs> a living Confederate to um, show off. There, there were also Union veterans too. And I mean, the short version of what happened was that the narrative of the old South, the the lost cause, the um, you know, the land that will never be forgot for all of its wonderfulness that was embodied in Gone with the Wind. This was part of a, a national narrative driven by Southerners to demonize Reconstruction, to rewrite the history of the Civil War, to make them seem to be the victims. And, um, and it was part of this process of re- restoring the South as... Uh, a a legitimate and and valued uh, aspect of American history. Had this always been the case in the Northwest, or was there some sort of progression where it became more acceptable or less acceptable? I I know that you know Confederate flag controversies started right after the Civil War. I imagine. No, they started during the Civil War. Right. So, you know, to me, that's an interesting part because people tend to think that the Pacific Northwest had nothing to do with the Civil War because we were weighed out here and, uh, you know, we weren't even a state. And what's been lost to history, I think, in in a significant way is that the Pacific Northwest was... And, and, and the settlement of the West, in particular the West Coast, was actually driven by um, Southerners and pro-Southern um, politicians. The Democratic Party was the dominant party during the years that uh, these territories were formed and shaped. 
And there were major players here. I mean, the first senator from Oregon, Joseph Lane, who was one of the founders of the Oregon Territory, uh, was on the vice presidential ticket with uh, John Breckinridge in 1860, running on the pro-Southern Democratic ticket. So this is the pro-slavery ticket, is the, the senator from Oregon who was, you know, accused of treason. And, of course, once the Civil War happened, he was essentially exiled home. And, but many Southern sympathizers lived in, particularly in California and also in Southern Oregon, were particular hotbeds. And there were, I can, I can identify at least two Confederate flag controversies that date to 1862. And this refers to the Confederate national flag that we were talking about, not the cross, but the, but the other flag. And um, in Smithfield, Oregon, in Lane County, Oregon, um, there was an attempt to, there was a, a group that raised the Confederate flag during the Civil War. And um, according to an article that uh, I read, a contingent of U.S. cavalry from Fort Vancouver, Washington, went all the way to southern Oregon and took that flag down. So we get into the turn of the century, and it has been said that Seattle seemed like a place where African Americans could prosper. Was the Confederate flag still being flown by people then? Yeah, well, it's interesting is, so certainly the Confederate flag, you know, basically disappears for quite some time. You don't see references to it. You don't find newspaper references to it. Prior to the turn uh, of the century or prior, at in, about in, that time? In, in the, during the sort of Reconstruction period. So there, there's tremendous tension still between people who fought in the Union Army and people and, and the party, the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party. And, you know, the, there's the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and whatnot during Reconstruction. So there's a lot of post-war strife around these issues. And then, <clears throat> um, but the flag, at least in the North, and certainly the Pacific Northwest, you don't see much about the flag. And the first reference I found to it is actually in the in the Daily Intelligencer, which became what we know as the Post-Intelligencer, October 7th of 1880. Whoever heard of a rebel flag hoisted or carried by Republicans? Democrats, on the contrary, have hoisted thousands of them and have gone into battle under them and endeavored to substitute them for our own starry banner. So here you see a kind of resurgence in national politics of the Democratic Party. The Republican Party has dominated since the war. The, the Democratic Party at that time is feeling its oats, and it's primarily the, the party of the South. And so, you know, here's, here's a Northwest paper talking about um, the sort of outrageous idea that these, these, you know, Confederate flags are beginning to appear. And you also enter a period of kind of commemoration of the Civil War where the veterans are having meetings and 
and parades, and they're, you know, the, the Grand Army of the Republic, the Veterans Organization is very prominent. There's a Southern version as well. And there's a lot of, um, you know, an insistence that, you know, if there's a Fourth of July parade, it's the American flag only. You know, you can't fly a Confederate flag in a in a parade. At some of the joint reunions the northern and southern groups have, the union groups for time insist that the Confederate flag cannot be shown. You know, we'll talk to Confederates. They can come and have a picnic, but they can't bring their flag. So it's like hugely important and symbolic. And it is about slavery. It is about... Um, it is about the Klan. It is about the violence of Reconstruction and Jim Crow. But it's also about which side was right, which side was wrong, who the winners were, who the losers were. And well, spe speaking of the Klan, how prevalent was the Klan in Washington State, for instance? Well, yeah, it depends on when you're talking about. I mean, so... There are references to the Ku Klux Klan on the West Coast in California and Oregon that are simultaneously with the Klan emerging in the South, so the late 1860s. There are references to Klan organizations in the Northwest as early as the late 1860s. They are mostly going against Chinese people. Those groups tend to sort of disappear until the early 20th century as the Klan resurges in the South after being put down. Um, they, they resurge elsewhere. And by the 1920s, you have very large Klan organizations throughout the West and the Midwest and very strong in Oregon, a little less strong, but still strong here in Seattle. And, you know, I mean, you can, there are photographs of Klan parades in Washington towns, of Klan, uh, you know, conventions and gatherings and cross burnings. They occurred all throughout King County. Um, one of the largest Klan rallies of that era took place in a field outside Issaquah uh, in the in 1920s. So, and it was fueled in part by um, Birth of a Nation the movie Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith, which came out in the, in, in the World War I period. It was a powerful piece of cinema, and it, it took the narration that basically said the South was the victim, that Reconstruction was worse than slavery, that... Uh, the, the noble South and the noble people of the South have been treated terribly and we need to honor, honor their heritage. And so it's this, you know, competing history. It's putting, literally making Ku Klux Klan the heroes of the American story. And this is what, you know, sets the stage for the fact that you could fly Confederate flags over downtown Seattle. Was Birth of a Nation popular in, oh, hugely popular in here. Seattle. Yes, and... it was. And um, it, it was very popular. And, you know, it was based on a book by Dixon, uh, Thomas Dixon, called The Klansman. That was made into a play which traveled all over the country. It came to Seattle. It played at the Moore Theater. 
And there was protest about it. The black community um, said they were going to come down and protest at the theater. The Seattle Police Department said, <laughs> if you do, you're going to regret it. Um, they tried to get money for a lawsuit to stop the play. That didn't work uh, because they had to provide a ridiculous bond, <laughs> you know. Um, so there, there was both national and local opposition to Birth of a Nation. And I think um, the, the, I think a lot of um, the, the black leadership, if you, if you look at the newspapers from that period, there was somewhat of a division about how big a deal do you make out of it because it just publicizes the movie versus how do you ignore it. So, for example, the Seattle Times refused to review The Klansman when it came as a play, but when it came back in its new guise as this sort of stunning piece of silent cinema, they raved about it. It played, you know, to packed houses in Seattle. And um, the voices that said, hey, you're getting the wrong view of history were really dampened, dampened down. So by the time Gone with the Wind comes out, the sale's been made. We'll be right back after this message. Are you nerdy by nature? Do you get thirsty for thinkers? The Crosscut Ideas Festival is returning to Seattle April 29th to May 6th with fresh conversations to quench your curiosity. We'll explore issues and innovations in science, health, equity, and politics, like wokeness in America, spiritual prescriptions for mental health, the heavy hand of the Supreme Court, and the rise of AI. Join Michael Barbaro, Audie Cornish, Eric Holder, Deepak Chopra, Ibram X. Kendi, Andrew Yang, and more. Tickets at crosscut.com slash festival. Were there people who publicly objected to the display of the Confederate flag or things like that? Yes. So, you know, one of the great sort of stories of journalism in Seattle was the Caton family. Horace Caton, his wife, Susie Revels Clayton, they ran a newspaper called the Seattle Republican, later a different version of it called Caton's Weekly. Um... And Horace Caton was kind of a Roosevelt progressive Republican, Teddy Roosevelt, um, and, um, you know, had was one of the few of that era who had worked his way into kind of middle class and political respectability within the Republican Party. And, um, you know, he was very dismayed at the changes in Seattle that he saw, which was the African-American community in the, in the early, late 19th century and early pre-World War I Seattle, um, looked like, you know, they, they had gained respectability, acceptance. Um, they, they had opportunities here that they wouldn't have had in other cities. And then sometime around that birth of the nation period, you see this change in attitude where restaurants begin to segregate. Um, and there's a very sad thing where Booker T. Washington visits Horace Caton and tells him, you know, if you think you're ever going to be equal here, you know, if you, if, you know, you're, you're living in a dreamland, you know, it's, it's not going to happen like you think. Well, I found a reference in uh, Caton's Weekly, February 2nd, 1918. 
So this is, you know, in the middle of World War One, and he writes this, which I thought was very telling. In some of the states of the South, the old Confederate flag is being draped with the stars and stripes, yet those committing such patriotic sacrilege claim to have the good of this country at heart. No person who recognizes the rebel bars and stripes of that South, which was the ensign of the most damnable rebellion that has ever been recorded in history, has a spark of patriotism within his bosom. If Theodore Roosevelt was president of the United States, the many who place that rebel flag beside the Stars and Stripes would die the death of a dog and ought to. <laughs> and Horace Caton was somebody who, who could speak and, and write very cogently, but also, um, you know, he, he was somebody who chose his words very carefully. And... Um, you know, and he had previously expressed concern about objecting to, like, the Klansmen. He was one of the ones who said, yeah, I just don't want to give them free publicity, you know. But there were many others in, in the black community who said, no, we have to speak out. So when you go to the 1940s and you're talking about um, Gone with the Wind, there's some divided opinion in the black press about that. There are people who are very upset about it who aren't happy with the portrayal of the South and the nostalgia, the sort of Southern nostalgia that that movie is really about. Um, there are other people saying, well, we can't do anything about it, and at least they have black actors playing black characters, whereas in Birth of the Nation, <laughs> black people were played by white people in blackface. Same with the Klansmen. I believe in the in the Klansman play, all the black characters were white people in blackface. So they're saying, you know, there is progress being made here. Um, and whether or not you believe that uh, to be true, um, that was a debate that, that you can see in the um, black newspapers. Well, in other parts of the country, especially in the South, the removal of... Confederate hero statues and such is has been underway and is still controversial. Are there remnants, physical remnants, statues, uh, commemorations of Confederate heroes, Confederate names still here? Well, there were. Um, we actually were early on the removal part of that because in the early 2000s, it was pointed out by... Um, Hans Dunchy, who was in the state legislature, that there were plaques or monuments at either end of Highway 99 in Washington, in Blaine and one in, in Vancouver, dubbing it the, the Jefferson Davis Highway. So now I think 99% of the people who traveled on Highway 99 had no idea it was called Never that. saw it. Right. And he said, well, what, what the heck is this about, and why are these monuments there? And he proposed they be removed. This set off a national firestorm in the Rush Limbaugh uh, you know, media ecosphere. The far right went crazy about the term cancel culture wasn't used, but that was a said He received death threats, and I, I mean, I've seen 
I did an article about this years ago. And I've seen some of the e- emails and letters that he got. Vitriol, the idea that you would remove these Jefferson Davis monuments. Well, it turns out it was part of a campaign by the Daughters of the Confederacy in the 1940s to get the, the this highway designated, and it was part of a national program. They were getting stretches of highway all over the country named to honor Jefferson Davis. Well, they went to the legislature here, and the legislature sort of never said yes and never said no, but gave them permission to put up these tablets on their own. But the state never officially designated the highway as the Jefferson Davis Highway. So they, they found some sort of a compromise that allowed this to happen. Well, then these, these markers were removed, and that uh, created great controversy. Now, one of those markers is now in a private park on I-5, um, and in Ridgefield, Washington, you can see it on southbound I-5. And the marker is in this, you know, uh, grassy area, and there are flagpoles carrying the Confederate flags. So that's become a subject of controversy, but because it's on private property, you know, it's a person who owns this stuff and whatnot, it has, you know, it, it continues. But um, there was a Confederate monument that was removed from Lakeview Cemetery, the monument um, that the daughters used to have, um, you know, ceremonies at was defaced and eventually it was removed. So, you know, we've had some of that. You know, we we definitely have sort of Confederate skeletons in our closet. So I did a story uh, a while back about a Seattle mayor named Beriah Brown, who actually started the first daily newspaper in Seattle. And he was actually a pro-Southern white supremacist who ran a newspaper in San Francisco during the Civil War that was heavily pro, well, it was anti-Union, anti-Lincoln. He tried to set up a uh, whites-only colony in Mexico. Well, he wrote a nasty editorial about Abraham Lincoln, and when Lincoln was assassinated, a mob came and destroyed his newspaper office. They burned it in his library and... Everything in the middle of the street in San Francisco, the military was called in. He left town. He eventually wound up in Portland and then Seattle, where he kind of completely erased this history. It was known to people, but and he sort of joined this whole sort of reinvention of like, well, I've left that all that stuff behind. I'm I'm just a booster for the town of Seattle now. But how many people know that we had and he was accused of leading a spy ring for the Confederacy during the war. And there's some evidence for that. And then he comes to Seattle and because becomes mayor? Yes. Yes. He also became a regent at the University of Washington. In what year? Well, we're talking 1870s here. Um, he, you know, he wanted to—I mean, he was—he— <laughs> You know, he wanted to leave that past behind, and Seattle and the Northwest was a place you could come to and do that. You could come and reinvent yourself.
when the Dred Scott decision came out, which essentially made people of African descent no longer citizens, and, and, and that the rules of slavery, slavery shifted from not being kind of a local laws, but being national law, and you could return a slave. The Washington Territorial Legislature passed a, a, a declaration approving of it, approving of the Dred Scott decision. So, you know, I think this leads us back to a lot of racist attitudes that were in the very founding of the Pacific Northwest, the anti-black laws in Oregon and California, um, support for Dred Scott in those same places. After the Civil War, there was a very strong strain of, of um, anti-Reconstruction democratic politics in the West. And that's part of our history that, I mean, literally has been whitewashed out. I mean, the Confederate flag flying over downtown Seattle is like the least of it. But looking into that issue provided a window on how this, how these attitudes kind of evolved in becoming, making such a thing publicly acceptable. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its seventh season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through May. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.